Well, good morning, church. If you can't tell, we're on the on-ramp to summer. Um, you might n notice that a little more acutely in our sanctuary this morning. We know there's an AC issue. We're going to get that solved as quickly as we can. But uh, in the meantime, don't you worry. We're all going to sweat together, so <laughs> it'll be good. Um, we got a couple things coming up related to uh, summer. Um, know that a lot of you take vacations and travel during summer, and so we want to take the opportunity while we're all together, uh, before all the, the coming and going hits, uh, to look forward to what's coming up. So coming up on Sunday, May 20th, we're going to have in the evening at 5 o'clock, we're going to have a pitch-in, uh, we're going to eat food together in fellowship, and then we're going to have a congregational meeting where we're going to look forward to what's coming in the fall. And I'll tell you, you want to be there for a number of reasons, but uh, one of the things that I know many of you keep asking about there will be an announcement regarding how much live preaching there will be starting in the fall. So don't miss out on that announcement and a good pitch in and on so much more uh, Sunday, May 20th. The day before that, the Saturday the 19th, um, an opportunity for our ladies to get together. We're going to have a brunch to discuss the topic of hospitality. Uh, that will be from 1030 till 1230. Um, I believe you need to sign up for that online, but there will be food and lots of ladies there that would I'd uh, love for you to join them, uh, thinking about how we can use hospitality in our fellowship and even for in our relationship with unbelievers. And last announcement is after this, uh, after our service, uh, Pastor Bruce Smith from College Park North Indy will be doing a Q&A uh, downstairs in the adult ed room, and uh, that will be in relation to the upcoming uh, church plant that we're considering in Pike Township in the YMCA. If you have any questions related to that or just want to be informed, I would encourage you to go to that uh, right after the service down in the adult ed room. All right, well, I'm eager to get to God's word this morning, and I hope you are too. Would you uh, join me in prayer? Let's ask the Lord's blessing for our time together. Father, as spring approaches, we see the flowers blooming and the grass growing. It's easy to focus on life seemingly all around us. And yet, that life is so fleeting. Flower fails, the grass withers, but the Lord of the, wor Lord of the Word endures forever. Help me now as I speak that word, to do it well, to do it in a way that's honoring and that feeds your people. Give us what we need, an abiding word that does not pass away. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you bring that animal into your home, you've signed a death warrant. The only question is which one of you is going to die. Those are the words of Tim Harrison, an Ohio public servant that specializes in the removal of exotic animals from people's homes. He appears in a documentary called The Elephant in the Living Room. Uh, in it, it explores a, a strange subculture that our neighbors here in the U.S. Uh, do some very odd things. They take animals like lions, tigers, yes, even bears, and they bring them into their residences to keep them as pets. Now, as you might imagine, this very often ends not well. 
Uh, so much so that Tim Harrison spoke in these very blunt words. But why is it that people think it's a good idea to take an animal like a lion and try to put it on a leash? Well, it's because of our success in domesticating other animals. Maybe you have a dog or a cat that you just love how they come and nuzzle against your leg and run around the house a little bit. But honestly, they're, they're not too much trouble to keep, right? I mean, they, they don't destroy your house, well, at least not too much. You know, they, they, they don't, they're not a danger to your kids because they're domesticated. Through years of breeding and training, we have brought these animals to a place where they are the type of things you can have sit in your lap and enjoy. But friends, it's a mistake to assume you can domesticate everything. A lion will not live on a leash forever. That's a mistake some people learn in blood. We make similar mistakes in our spiritual life when we think about sin as something we can domesticate. We think of it like a, a little lap dog that we can enjoy and pet. And when it's inconvenient, maybe we put it in the laundry room. You can hear it in the way we talk about sin. Oh, you know, that's a struggle that I have, yes, but, you know, I really, I have a handle on it. Oh, it's really no big deal. It's not hurting anyone. Or what even, I could stop anytime I want. But friends, we know this isn't the case, don't we? Maybe that sin that seems so controllable is even starting to nibble on you. You need to be reminded this morning that that lion won't live on the leash forever. As the great theologian John Owen once said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's really the topic of our passage this morning. 1 John chapter 3, 1 through 9. It shows us that Christians can't be playing around with sin as if it's something that we can domesticate. Instead, we have to make war with our sin. We're in a series called Be Sure, looking at how it is Christians can have assurance that we can know we're the real deal, that we really are part of God's family. And we'll see this morning that Christians, to be sure, cannot play around with sin. They need to be in the business of putting their sins to death. We'll see that as we move through the passage in two sections, or really two reasons why you can't play around with your sin. The first is in 1 through 3. And you can't play around with your sin because of where you're going. And then in 1 through 4, you can't play around with your sin because of where you came from. Let's turn our attention first to verses 1 through 3. You can't play around with your sin because of where you are going. John starts off with what one commentator, John Stott, calls an explosion of praise. I love that phrase. He starts off, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. It's as if John has tasted of this love, and it's of such quality that he just bursts out into wonder and says, where is this love from? It's certainly not from this country. A very rudimentary way of translating that phrase would be, of what country is this love? It's like saying this love is out of this world. Now, I'm not a coffee aficionado, but I'm around enough of them. 
uh, to have had a few good cups of coffee. Maybe you've had this every now and then. Uh, you have a cup of coffee from one of those high-end coffee shops, and uh, maybe your palate isn't totally tuned to the intricacies of the flavors, but you have, take a taste of it and you go, ooh, that's not from Indiana. Uh, that is a good cup of coffee, right? That's the, the type of reaction John is having here. He gets a taste of this love of God and says, this can't be from this world. It must be from heaven. What type of love is he talking about specifically? Well, that's what the next phrase tells us that we should be called children of God. It's the adoptive love of the Father to not just put up with us, not just let us be around him because we got in on the family plan. No, no, to actually love us so much that he would bring us into his family and treat us like sons and daughters. It's the, the type of acceptance that we get from heaven itself that makes every other rejection in this world palatable. That's where he goes right after that. We should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. If you think about it, as a Christian, you can put up with any type of rejection you get in this life. Maybe there are grandkids that don't call as often as you'd like or hardly ever come visit you anymore. Maybe it's a best friend that over time has just started to distance himself from you, little by little, ghosting in your texts. Maybe it's someone at work. You just invited them to lunch and they just gave you the cold shoulder. You know, you can endure all of those type of rejections and so much more because you are totally accepted as a child of God. If you're in God's family, do you really need anyone else's approval? What we have here is love from heaven itself. Love that allows us to put up with all manner of rejections in this life. John starts with how it is that we experience this love now, but then he turns his attention in verse 2 to how we look forward, where this love is carrying us. Look with me in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. He looks forward and says, as good as this is, there's something even better coming. We're, we're not all that we're going to be yet. Something's about to happen. Look what it is. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. John now casts his gaze forward and tells us, come along with me and look forward to the greatest moment in your life that has not happened yet. The best day that you have ever had has not been lived. Because one day, if you're a believer in Jesus, one day you will actually see him. Your eyes won't just hope to see him. You will physically see the risen Christ. And when that happens, friends, something amazing will happen. You will be changed. You will see a beauty that all other beauties are just a whisper of. And when you see it, something inside you will never be the same. Theologians back in the medieval era used to call this the, the beatific vision. The greatest ideal that a human creature could ever attain to, to be able to ascend into heaven and look upon the Holy One on the throne 
and survive the experience. If you're familiar with Dante's Divine Comedy, at the very end of Paradiso, as he goes through all the layers of heaven, at the very end, he, he actually sees God and he doesn't even have words to describe it. Friend, that future is yours. Now, my guess is most of us have experienced this in small part. We've seen beauty in such a way that it's actually changed a little bit of us. Uh, maybe you saw it when your child was born. The first time you held a son or daughter and you looked into the sweet little face, and it's like something inside you changed. Or maybe the first time that you saw your niece or your nephew or a grandson or a granddaughter, or maybe the first time you met your spouse, you just got a sense, this is such a profound moment. I, I, I've seen something that is truly beautiful, and, and something changes inside you. I, I had a friend that described it as his daughter was born. He said, uh, in that moment, my butter melted. <laughs> For a big, gruff guy, that was quite a statement. And I think you know what I mean, right? It, it, there's something that beauty can do to us. But friends, as profound as those moments are, they're just a millionth of what's coming for those of us in Christ Jesus. The day is coming when we will see the glory of Jesus and be changed forever. And as we look forward to that day, it builds longing in our hearts, even through tear-filled eyes as we look to try and see him. It builds longing in our hearts, and that longing actually changes how we live now. That's where he takes us in verse 3. He says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As you look forward to that day, as you have this hope in your heart, it actually changes the way you live now. You start seeing yourself as a part of the family of God, as a citizen of heaven, as a, a citizen of a country other than Indianapolis, a, a citizen of the heavenly country. And as you start to see yourself that way, you actually start to live that way. It's a little bit like we are being acclimated to the culture of heaven. Have you ever had this experience? You, you, culture shock? You, you, know, you go to a place that has different societal norms and expectations, and sometimes it can just be a, a little awkward when it happens. Uh, I had the great privilege of taking a friend of mine. He was a British professor, um, stereotypically a British professor, very uh, reserved and proper. Um, and I had the privilege of taking him to a birthday party in South Florida of a very South American friend of mine. And um, I, he, I, we were hanging out, and he heard that there was a birthday party was going on. And I asked him, hey, you want to come along? And I mean, have you ever been to a Colombian birthday party? He's like, no, I would love to do that. So I said, okay, so we hopped in the car, we started driving over there, and I only had a couple minutes in the car to try and prepare him for it. So I told him, listen, people are going to get a little close to you, and uh, people are going to talk kind of like really, really close to you, and there's going to be a lot of slapping on the back, and just kind of roll with it, you'll be fine. And he, he, so he said, okay, but I could tell he was a little nervous, so we, we got there, and it was everything I had promised and more. Uh, I mean, the music's blaring, people are moving, he walks in, it's as if everyone knows him, hey, you know, they're slapping him on the back, and he's putting up with it remarkably well up to this point. Um, he, he eats all the food, he tries to make conversation as best he can, but it's obvious, he is from a different culture. And then the end of the party comes, and um, 
you have to understand something about uh, South American, Central American parties. A lot of times, the person being honored will go around at the end and personally greet everyone on the way out. So basically, you can't just walk out. You kind of get kissed and hugged out. And um, I didn't think to warn him about this. So we're all sitting down, and uh, he, the birthday boy gets up, and he starts working his way around the table. Pat on the back, hug, kiss on the cheek. Pat on the back, hug, kiss on the cheek. And my friend notices. And he starts shifting in his chair and looking around. And I could tell he's just looking for an exit. There was none available. He was trapped. And I got to tell you, I could have stepped in. (laughs) But I thought, you know, who am I to deprive him of the full cultural experience, right? (laughs) So his turn finally comes. I'm I'm really wondering, what is he going to do? And uh, it looks like he settled on the defense you would use against a grizzly bear. <laughs> the Colombian friend, my Colombian friend starts coming towards him, and he puts his arms above his head, and he starts shaking them. He says, no, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> and uh, thankfully, my Colombian friend got the hint and wasn't too offended by it. But, uh, you know, it's culture shock. Culture shock. You, know, you go somewhere, and if you're not prepared for it, it can, it can really throw you for a loop. Have you ever wondered why it is you get saved and God doesn't just zap you into heaven immediately? I mean, there's a lot of reasons. He probably has people for you to witness to. He certainly has good works he's laid out for you here on earth. But one of the things that God is surely doing is he is giving you time to prepare for the culture coming in heaven. Think about how many things in your life just will not fit in in a place where righteousness dwells and no unclean thing can enter the walls. Think of every conversation free from any manipulation or pride. Think of what it would be like to have friendships that are totally open and transparent with no fear of being hurt. Think about what what will that be like? As we live with this hope in our hearts and start living like citizens of heaven, imperfectly now. You're adapting to the culture in heaven that you'll live with for eternity. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. So long, in fact, that you started to ask yourself, why am I still here? You know, my best days of ministry are behind me. I can't do the things I once was able to do. Many of my friends are gone. Why does God still have me here? What's he waiting for? Brother or sister, God is kindly giving you time to get ready for the culture of heaven. Maybe there's some roots of bitterness that you need to pull out because those weeds will have no room in the garden to come. Maybe you need to, yet again, put someone else's needs before yours, even as you feel marginalized, because you're going to a place where self-interest has no place. Brothers and sisters, God has not forgotten you. He is kindly giving you time to prepare for the eternity that you will enjoy. We can't keep on sinning because of where we're going. One day we're going to see Jesus and be like him and live with him forever. So let's get ready for it. But we also can't keep on sinning because of where we came from. That's what we see in verses 4 through 9. Now, this, it, 
section is really two chunks that are running parallel to each other that have complementary ideas. I want to show you uh, how this parallel works briefly because it's a useful Bible study uh, skill to have. When you see these type of parallels, uh, the Bible's showing you that these concepts are somehow related to each other. So first I want to show you the severity of sin, and then the second category is the origin of sin. So the severity of sin in verses 4 through 7, and then the origin of sin in verses 8 through 9. So look at the parallels with me. Look in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Now jump down with me look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. You see, you see the parallel there? Whoever makes a practice of? Now there's another one. Look, look at verse 5. You know that he, that is Jesus, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Now look down in verse 9. I'm sorry, the end of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, so the first one, practice of sin, practice of sin. Second one, Jesus, Jesus. And when you go home this afternoon, you can tease out the other two points of parallel there. But when those are in their Bible, they're showing you that these two concepts are important and somehow they're related to each other. In this case, it's showing us that Christians can't continue sinning because of where they came from. We see that in the severity of sin and the origin of sin. Now, severity is a topic that you understand pretty intuitively when you see it. Um, in the 1930s, there wasn't a uh, national police force like what we know, know as the modern FBI. Um, local sheriffs and lawmen would handle things as they came up. Uh, that is, until the rise of bank robbers. Uh, maybe some names you've heard of, people like uh, Bonnie and Clyde, John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson. Uh, these bandits made use of the newly uh, cheap and available cars and roads to rob banks and then drive away out of jurisdictions before the lawmen could catch them. And uh, it, that went on for a while until it got so bad that there was a shootout in Kansas City that became called the Kansas City Massacre. Several lawmen were killed in it. And there was a national outcry that said, this problem is too big, we've got to do something about it. So that let, put political pressure that allowed for the formation of what we now know as the FBI, uh, which handles these interstate level of uh, crimes. Sin can only be effectively fought once we realize how severe it is. And let's just be frank, we, we don't really take sin all that seriously most of the time. I was getting my hair cut a little while ago, and the gal cutting my hair was really nice, and so we started talking about Jesus. And I was sharing my testimony with her, and I told her, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just amazed by the fact that God would save a sinner like me. Like, I had such a rotten heart when grace found me. I didn't deserve any of it. And it's amazing that grace is something any of us can have. You can have that forgiveness. Do you want it? And she got quiet. And, uh, and then after a little bit, she said, oh, I'm sure you weren't that hard to forgive. And... Uh, I knew she was being nice. That's all she was trying to do. But she also revealed what she thought about sin. It's not that big a deal. It's, it's not that big a deal. I'm sure you got some bad habits, but it's nothing to get broken up over. Yet look what it is that John calls sin in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. 
Sin's not just a, a little mistake, a little slip up. It's a flagrant disregard for the law of God. It's looking the judge square in the face at your hearing and shaking your fist at him. It's telling him, I'm going to live my way and I don't care what you think. Oh, sure, we're not actively thinking that every time we do it, but that at its most fundamental nature is what sin is. It's wickedness. It's rebellion against God. It's because of the severity of sin that verse 5 makes sense. Sin is so bad that you know that he appeared, that's Jesus, in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. Think about it. Why would Jesus go through all the trouble of coming down to this earth, walking that hard, hard road up to the cross of Calvary? Why would he put up with all the pain, all the rejection, all the injustice? Was it just to show us an example? No, it was to take away sin. Sin was that bad. Sin had to be dealt with so much so that the Son of God came on a mission to take it away. And his doing that actually changes the way we live now. That's what we get into in verse 6 and 7. He says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Now here John uses two sides of the, of the same coin. On one side, he says, no one who keeps on sinning. And the other side, he says, the, the one who practices righteousness. It's really communicating the same thing. Sin is such a big deal that you can't say you're a Christian and go on living in a continual lifestyle and practice of sin. They're just incompatible with each other. Sin is so severe that if you really understood what it was, then over time your behavior would change. Now, verses 8 through 9, he doesn't take the pedal off the gas. The, the intensity continues. Now he's talking about the origin of sin, but he's using extremely strong language. Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, I, I realize in this day and age, we don't talk much about the devil. M many Christians are embarrassed by the idea that the Bible does talk about the devil. Uh, we have put everything into the categories of self-esteem and victimization to the point where there's really no room for a spiritual power trying to lead us into disaster. And yet the Bible is not afraid to talk about the devil. He was back in the garden. He led our parents, Adam and Eve, into their first sin. He has been actively stoking the fires of sin ever since, causing wicked men and women to act wickedly, to harm each other, with the ultimate goal of opposing God and all of his purposes. He has a, a legion of demons at his disposal, he has authority. He's referred to in Scripture as the God of this age, the, the prince of power of the air. It's not like he's a figment of our imagination. The Bible says this is God's enemy, and he is out to do us harm. 
Once again, he moves from telling us about how severe things are to then telling us about Jesus. Look with me in verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? Yet again, he didn't come down just to enjoy the Galilean countryside. He came down because he had a mortal enemy to defeat. See, at the cross of Jesus, Satan and all of his forces for once and for all dealt a defeating blow. At the moment where it looked as if evil had triumphed, the greatest evil ever accomplished, the sinless Son of God tacked up on a cross to die. Jesus actually used his own death to break Satan's power over us. Do you understand that? That that means that Jesus is on a mission to destroy Satan and all of what Satan is doing in this world. Think about what that means for us as believers. When we sin, it's as if we're acting like we're on the other side. One of the images that the the passage uses here, again, is family. Look here in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. The way the passage talks about it, you're either in God's family or you're in the devil's family. And the way you live reveals which of the two you belong to. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying here. Um, As Pastor Mark pointed out last week, we can't take these strong statements about sin and about pursuing righteousness and not sin and absolutize them as if to say that Christians must or can live in perfect sinless uh, sinless perfection. Uh, Sometimes people will take a verse like verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. They'll take a, a statement like that, and they'll say, see, th- this is teaching that with just enough work, or if you're truly saved, then you will completely stop sinning. You, you will live in sinless perfection. Charles Spurgeon once ran into a preacher who was claiming that about himself, saying that he was sinlessly perfect, and uh, legend has it anyway that Uh, In the middle of lunch, he said, oh, you're sinlessly perfect, okay. And he got up and went around the table and took a pitcher of water and dumped it on the guy's head and waited for the reaction to prove, turns out there's a little bit of sin left in you. Now, if you have any doubt that this is not what John is saying, let me just show you very briefly back in chapter 1. Look with me in chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You could also go to a passage like Romans chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul admits very plainly that he doesn't he, he's not free from sin. In fact, he, he hates the, the very thoughts and actions that are coming out of his heart. And then he ends with this, but thanks be to God and Christ Jesus who gives me the victory. So we as believers live in this in-between where we long for the day when we are made perfect when we see Jesus. And yet we don't live the way we used to. 
It's also written right into the passage. You can see the way the ESV translate it, that phrase that used so many times, the practice of sinning. It's just a way of translating out of the Greek this idea of a, a continual action, something that uh, is repeated and constitutes a lifestyle in, our, in modern terminology. Now, what this is saying is that believers can't keep on playing around with sin. It's not saying that you perfectly do this, but it's saying you can't keep on doing this if you're part of God's family. Uh, in high school, I played on a basketball team that was not very good. Um, we didn't win that many games, uh, but the coach would, took pride in certain things, and one of them was not complaining even when we were losing. And uh, he had a thing he would do when he would catch a player grumbling because the referee didn't make a call or because the bus was too hot or whatever. And uh, he would catch someone grumbling and he would say, there's no complaining on this team. And we're like, oh, okay, no complaining on this team. Got it, coach. Um, every once in a while, we complained so much that he'd get really upset and he would say, there's no complaining on this team, but there is running. And boom, that meant we were running wind sprints. And oh, great. Thanks, coach. Now, now, what was the coach saying in that moment? He was not saying that the players on his team never complain. Otherwise, we wouldn't be having that conversation, right? Uh, he also wasn't saying if you complained, you were off the team. Otherwise, we wouldn't run the wind sprints. No, all he's saying is that there is no excuse for complaining on this team. So it is for children of God. If you've experienced this adoptive family love that's brought you into his family, there is no excuse for continuing to live a practice of sin. Maybe you're here this morning, and you know there's something in your life that you've been living as if you can keep it on a leash. Like you can keep it, put it in the back when anyone comes around so they don't ever have to know about it. But deep down, you know that God isn't pleased with it. Brother or sister, hear me this morning. There is no excuse for it. That lion will not stay on the leash forever. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Maybe this week you need to fight it by going public with it. Find a, a close Christian friend that you can confide in and tell them what it is that's going on inside. There is a stark warning here that if we continue in a pattern of sin, we should have no confidence that we truly are children of God. Maybe you're here this morning and you know you're not a child of God. You know you're not a Christian and you're just kind of checking it out. I just want to encourage you to, to say that, that you're in the right place. We want you here. But I, I hope you understand that we do not think that we can somehow defeat sin on our own. That's not what being a Christian is about. If not for what Jesus did for us on the cross, we would all still be under the power of the devil and enslaved to our sin. But we believe we have found a way out, that God has done what was impossible for us. And so it's us trying to show our love to you that we would tell you the truth, that you can't go on living in sin forever. One day we'll all stand before Jesus and give an account for how we lived in this life. Friend, we want you to look forward to that day the same way we do. And we believe that only happens by throwing yourself before Jesus and pleading for his mercy. We, as believers in Lord Jesus, should never think 
that it is of our own strength that we are able to win this fight. And yet we have no excuse. Sin isn't something to play around with. You can't domesticate it. You can't keep this lion on that leash. Close with, with this. I uh, got a phone call from someone I hadn't heard from in literally a decade. Um, early on in my ministry, I had uh, doing college ministry, I met him. And uh, he was from a Christian family. He said he was a Christian, but he was very flagrantly living in a uh, pursuit of pleasure lifestyle. And so I sat down with him and I talked with him. I laid out the gospel. I, I pleaded with him. I uh, told him, you know, nothing's going to satisfy you. Only Jesus can do that. If you, if you keep living this way, it's going to destroy you. And uh, he, he wasn't buying what I was selling. And little by little, we, we went our separate ways. So 10 years later, I, I see a number. I still have my contacts from 10 years ago in my phone. So I knew who it was and picked it up. And immediately I could tell something was wrong. Um, his speech was slurred, but uh, he said he wanted to tell me something, and so I listened as he slowly told me a story. He said, uh, over the years after we passed parted company, uh, he had gone further and further in his pursuit of this hedonistic lifestyle until he, uh, he overdosed, and he ended up in a hospital, and they had to resuscitate him multiple times, and he had multiple strokes and ended up with permanent brain damage. He said it was a miracle he's alive. Um, he had been out of the hospital for a year and a half when I talked with him. And he said that he remembered something that I had said to him. I didn't remember the exact thing, but he, he said he remembered it. And he, he said that uh, he was so glad that Jesus had let this happen to him. Because for the first time, he didn't want sin anymore. Now he wanted Jesus. And he just thought I should know that. And uh, he's at a church. He's going to church with his wife. And he's being cared for. And uh, I realized in that moment, that's a child of God. God was kind enough to bring him to the end of his sin, no matter what it took. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't want you to have sin nibble at you or take a chunk out of you or overcome you all together. Christians can't keep on playing around with sin. Instead, make war with it. You follow Jesus, the one who took away your sin and defeated your enemy, the devil. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, for your love, what love is this? That you, the Lord of bliss, would save our souls. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming for rebels like us. Thank you for making an end to our sins so that we can live for you. Would you work amongst us now if there's anything that any of us need to do before you? Would we take care of that today? Would we not assume that sin will live on a leash forever? Would we put it to death and find you to be sufficient for our very life. Bless us now as we go. Remind us of what we have in your family as your children. We pray in your name. Amen.